we're kind of in the uh, midst of a mini-series on the church. Um, because in some ways it's kind of silly. We just got done doing like days and months of Acts, which is all about the church, right? And then we're like, and let's talk about the church. But that's because there's so much that talks about church just outside of the book of Acts, right? Uh, Acts is a great book that kind of gives us the development and the beginning stages of church. But then we see so much more about church and what it means to be church. And so this morning, we are looking at this idea of dynamic and static. And I gave it the title like dynamic, the church as dynamic and not static. But that's actually a really bad title, so ignore that. Um, Because church is actually both. Um, Church is both static and dynamic. And there's actually this beautiful relationship between the two that's really important when we consider church. And so we're going to kind of walk through that a little bit. I tried to get my Sunday school class up here this morning um, to represent static and dynamic, um, but there weren't, they were all volunteering and helping, and so I couldn't motivate them, although Ethan Tater's still here, so maybe I could. You know. um, but for our kind of working definition this morning, we're going to kind of take this idea of static is this idea of being a weight and non-movement. It is something that is, is, is still. Um, we're not going to go with the definition that it's like this, like, scratchy white noise in the background, although church can be like that sometimes. We don't, we're not do, dealing with that today. We're dealing with the idea of, like, the physics of static, right? That it's, it's stationary. And um, dynamic is this idea of being in movement, activity, progress, positive attitude, and motion. And so those two things, as they wrestle together, create tension that its intent, hopefully, is to spur us on to push us deeper into awareness of what God is doing in the body. And so when we think about these two things, we, you know, initially when I named this church as dynamic and not static, it was this idea of like, well, we're not meant to be stationary. We're not meant to be still. Church is meant to go, right? And, and the, the, I was like, oh, yeah, every gospel, right? How does the gospels end? All four gospels end with this idea of going. Go and make disciples, right? We see that in Matthew 28 where he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so there's this important and very significant emphasis on going. And we even talk about it because it's the Great Commission, right? And so like when you give something the title of great, it's important, better not ignore it, right? And yet when we read a little bit more in the context that the Great Commission is given, Luke does a really good job of highlighting for us the stasis part, the static part. Luke 24, 45, it says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer 
and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. If we think about that time, right? The disciples, I mean, like, it's been a whirlwind for them. They had their teacher, their master arrested at one of the most holiest times of the year and go through this whole process. And then he dies on the cross. And so they're in mourning. And then, surprise, he shows up and starts revealing himself to them and says, oh, I'm here again. Like, there is no mental construct <laughs> to be able to make sense of all that. And in the midst of all of that, Jesus opens their minds, right? He says, let me help you understand this. And then he asks them to stay and wait. And they don't know exactly what. I mean, Luke just says, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And so they know something is coming, but they're waiting. But they're also waiting in this fear. Because their teacher was just crucified. And if that wasn't dangerous enough, now he's back. <laughs> and it's like, what do we do now, right? There's this tension that creates this uncertainty. And Jesus directs them to stay in preparation of going in preparation of becoming dynamic. When we think about our own life in this way, I don't know about you, but I find that the place of waiting, the place of being static is, is very anxiety-inducing at times. Because when I know the anticipation of something, I can really focus on that and get lost in just the presence of being. I think for the disciples, probably waiting to move on and to the ministry of going and spreading the gospel was a really important time of healing for them, a really important time of processing everything that they've experienced, not just with Jesus' crucifixion, but his whole ministry. Right? Their minds just opened, their ability to make sense of his teachings. Right? They needed to sit in that and process. It, for some of you, maybe I've been in this position where um, you have a car that's been running and it's been going well. You take it to the shop and all of a sudden you realize, you know, your mechanic calls you and says, hey, so you got this problem with the car, right? And all of a sudden you're faced with this decision do I let the car go and get something new? Wasn't planning on it. Do I put the money in to fix it? How long will it get me? And it creates this place of like having to, having to think, having to process, having to make a decision. 
And you might say, maybe some of you have, like, well, I don't really want to put the money in, but I can't really afford a, another car right now, so I'm just going to choose to run with the car I have until it is done and I have to, right? And it creates this, like, uncertainty of, like, well, is today the day my car is going to die? I don't know. Maybe. Um, and it... And yet, there's this anticipation of, right? And so maybe you start looking at what's available, what's out there. Maybe you consider, well, if I get this loan, or what can I do here? And we quickly want to fill up that space. We quickly want to fill up and feel like there's movement in a time that is actually meant to be still, to just rest. And it's in that time that I think actually requires so much faith, so much trust. And that's really difficult. It's difficult when you're anticipating something. I think the opposite, though, is true, too, that when we aren't anticipating, being, being static, being still, can actually become very nice, very comfortable. And then we don't want to move, right? We don't want to change. You know, if I'm sitting on the Caribbean island in a hammock with a cool glass of lemonade, I'm not, I'm good. I don't need to move, you know? Let the sun and the breeze just like relaxing. And then, and so, yes, I'm very comfortable just being, right? But that doesn't ever happen, one, because I'm not on Caribbean island, and two, my son would never actually let me sit that still for <laughs> that long. And so I hope you can see that even in our own life, there is this real tension between being static and being dynamic. And there are times where it's really important just to be still and just to hear, to listen, to receive, to in essence, be that weight that just is so that we can be prepared to move, so that we can flow in the power that the Lord has for us, just like the disciples had to wait for that power to come. It also, in, the, in, in being static, I think it gives us this opportunity to be prepared for the right kind of movement. When, what we just walked through with the book of Acts, there's like so many new things that the disciples and the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees were faced with. There's so much that they were challenged by due to the, the, the life and ministry of Jesus. And we're not wired <laughs> to be able to like embrace change that drastically, that dramatically. And so this, the static, the, the waiting, the stillness really prepares us to mentally be able to make transition, to change, to embrace what God might have in store for us. I know for my son is this way in that like he, 
he's really good if he knows what's going on. And every day after school, so what's the plan? You know, and he's like, what's the plan? What are we doing? Where are we going? You know, and he wants to know. But if we're like, oh, yeah, we're doing this, this, and this, and then all of a sudden something changes, and we're like, yeah, sorry, we can't do that. It's like, what? No way. This was the plan. Why aren't we sticking to the plan? And for some of us, that's really important, right? The predictability. And when something is static, there's something predictable about it. And there's something that's safe about it. There's something that's comforting, and I can just know. But when something is dynamic, and it's in motion, and it's changing, and it's, it's pushing against us, it's creating friction in our life, there's a lot about that that feels unsafe. There's a lot about that that doesn't feel comforting. And it challenges us. And to be prepared for that movement, to be prepared for that, there's something very valuable in being static, being still with God. Little disclaimer. I realized as I was preparing this too that this is a type of message that like at the end of it, it's like I drew the short straw out of everybody who had to preach this message where like at the end of it, I'm like, and so by the way, as a church, the big change we're going to do now is we're going to like turn this into a jump house and not do church or something like that. You know, like one of those things where it's like, you know how the pastor preaches the message and spiritualizes something and then says, okay, and so here's what God's doing. That's not this, so don't worry. <laughs> There's no big, big ending here. But I think it does challenge us to think about how we are the body and how we're to work together. So if you would turn to the book of Philemon, we're going to look at this letter from Paul to Philemon as an example of how we go from a place of static homeostasis into a dynamic transition. And sometimes these changes and transitions are little. Sometimes they're massive. And um, we're going to see that here with Philemon. So if you're looking for it, it's like one page in your Bible. It's right before Hebrews. <laughs> this is the letter of Paul to Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, 
an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a brother, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So here we see Paul, through a personal letter to Philemon, challenges the cultural norm and puts an expectation on Philemon to act very differently. And this is a personal letter. It's not a letter that is written to Philemon's uh, house church. It's written to him and his family. Yet, there's also that awareness that, hey, there's a body of believers that meets in his home. And so he is a spiritual leader. He is someone who is an influencer in the Christian community. But it's important to note that Paul's not just appealing to Philemon, although he's the head of the home, he's also appealing to his family, which we see in, in that he says to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier which is likely his wife and son. And in Roman culture, his wife would have actually been the one who was responsible for the slaves working in the home. And so she would have been heavily involved in the arrangements and the situation with Onesimus fleeing and running. And so Paul, Paul includes all of them. He's saying, let's see a shift in the way that we respond to our brother. For at this point in Roman culture, slaves would have no rights, no authority. Now what Paul's doing here is asking something of Philemon that is very different than what Roman culture would be. But he's also very much in line with Roman culture in that he has given residence, he has taken in a runaway slave, and is actively working to restore that relationship. 
But what's different is he's not asking Philemon to receive him as a bond servant, as a slave again. He's asking him to receive Onesimus as a brother, which is a huge shift, right? And in, in, in context, right, it's almost ridiculous because it's like, wait, he disobeyed. Onesimus disobeyed. He ran away. He deserves punishment, right? He deserves to be reprimanded and to, oh, like, give us payment for this. Loss of work, all the troubles that we've put out to get, find him and to, and to know where he's at. And Paul's saying, cancel all that. Actually, I'll pay it. Receive him like a brother. And so, in this sense, it's like, wait, reward Onesimus for running away? But what Paul's arguing is like, no. No, reward him. Receive him on account of his faith. Receive him on account that he now knows Christ as his Savior. And we prioritize that. And in that, what we see is the value of him. The relationship we now get to have together is the priority. And so we see that Paul advocates for this, this Christian, this, this Christ worldview over the Roman cultural worldview, which creates a massive shift. Philemon, he, he resides in, in um, Colossa, which is also, you know, um, we see that Paul writes to the Colossians. So he's a part of that culture. It's a very thick Roman culture. And so if Philemon does receive Onesimus in this way, that's making a massive statement. Because if he has a church that meets in his home, that alludes to him having some prominence in the community, a house that's large enough to have a, a, a house church. He has slaves, so he obviously has some wealth that he can own people as property. And so for him, he's going to be watched. He's going to be in the public eye in regards to how he receives Onesimus back. And he sets the stage for a shift. And this is so often what is the tension for the church in any culture, is that we are actually called to create tension in culture and to live out a Christ worldview in the midst of whatever our cultural worldview is doing. That's extremely difficult. It's very, very hard. And Paul appeals to Philemon to do this. But he doesn't appeal based on position, right? He's very clear to say, I have the right to. I could throw my apostle card out there. But I'm not. I am appealing on account of love because of our relationship. And so there are times, right, where we need to appeal to certain 
situations, certain environments based on our position as follower of Christ. But what we see here is that the position, the influence, the authority of relationship, of one-on-one human connection, that that speaks volumes. That creates a greater appeal because it's through love, right? And love is a strong and powerful force because it speaks to the heart. It speaks to a deep longing we all have to be loved. And so when we can appeal to others in love, then there's a sense of belonging. There's a sense of togetherness that comes that gives an individual courage to face the struggle, to face the difficulty, to face the challenges that come when we're to create movement that causes friction. I know for me, I'm a, I'm a peacemaker. I don't like to create friction. Something in my practice I've had to learn to do. I could easily tell people what they want to hear and feel good about that. Good. It's everybody else in the world that has a problem, not you, right? But that's not loving. It might be keeping the peace so they don't get mad at me or get hurt by me or upset, right? But it's not loving. And so I don't say, well, you are the problem, and actually you do this, this, and this. You need to knock that off. But I say to them, yeah, this is really hard, isn't it? I can really understand why you said that to them because you were really just trying to protect yourself from having to hear something hurtful from them. And, and that makes a lot of sense, but yeah, what happened, right? You ended up having to hear that hurtful thing anyway because they were hurt by what you said. And so how can we change that for you? How can you step into the relationship being courageous in love? How can you step out and take that risk of vulnerability and say, hey, I really care about you. I don't want to fight. I don't want to argue. Hey, I don't think we should do this. Let's, you know, let's do this because I care about you. And when we can do that, and we can express it that way, all of a sudden, we become in a position of relational authority. And that relational authority gives us the opportunity to show love, to embody Christ, to be dynamic and influence our culture, to make a difference in our neighbors' lives, in our co-workers' lives, and in the lives of those people that we come in contact with. But as with anything, to be able to take that risk, to be able to take that step, we need to rest in God. One of my favorite verses in Scripture is Ephesians 2, 21 and 22. It's just part of it. It says, 
You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, there's something static. There's Jesus, the cornerstone. If a cornerstone moves in a building, don't go in it, <laughs> right? Like, it's bad news. And so it's the weight, it's the, 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 the stillness, the foundation that we build upon. But then he goes on in Ephesians, Paul says that we are being built. It's active, right? We look at Acts and we say, wow, this is so cool. God, like, built his church. No, God is building his church. And so we can look at history and we can say, here's all of this example of what God did and look at all the miracles and look at all the things that he made happen and little churches built, growing and serving each other. And, and he still is doing that. The church in America today is not complete, right? The church in Africa today is not complete. It's still growing. And if we forget that, right, then we're just in this comfortable place of I go to church on Sunday mornings and it feels nice. But when we consider that church is still growing, it's still being built upon, built into what God's design and purpose is for the body of Christ, then sometimes the pain that we feel is not because we're in the wrong spot. It's because it's growing pain. And growing pains signify life, and life is good. Just invite you to reflect on that. So just sit for um, just a minute, not too awkward, but awkward enough, of silence. And just to, to be present with that. Just be present with the Lord. Be present of the foundation we stand upon and the call to action that we have. John 16, 13 says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Jesus does not move unless the Father says move. In that same way, we listen for his voice so we can move. So the question is, what happens to Onesimus? We don't know, based on scripture, what happens to Onesimus. But Ignatius, a spiritual father, he writes in his epistle to the Ephesians, he makes mention of Onesimus as pastor in Ephesus. And so he would be pastor after Timothy, who was a part of 
Paul's entourage. And that Onesimus then is martyred, stoned to death at Rome under Tarjan, the emperor. There's also some other uh, historical inclinations that Onesimus would have had that position because there's a whole bunch of writings that were from Paul and letters to different churches that got, were discovered in Ephesus um, with kind of this letter of Philemon and others together that alludes to the fact that Onesimus would have had these letters due to his role in this dynamic between Paul and Philemon and being received. And so there's some evidence that says Philemon honored Paul's request and it received Onesimus as a brother. And because of that, Onesimus was able to grow in the spirit of the Lord and in his strength as a teacher and become pastor of a church in Ephesus. It's a beautiful thing, beautiful thing. Would you pray with me? Father God, we know that you are at work and you are constantly spurring us on. But in that, Lord, you, you invite us into this place of rest, this, this place of being still, of being static, so that we can move with your power. Father, it's just amazing when we think of a church not being a building every mile on every corner of every street, but as a body that is a conduit for your spirit, that is sitting and waiting and moving in the timing, and that this is just a beautiful orchestration of your hands at work, Lord. Father, as you have opened the minds of the disciples, would you open our minds to see your spirit at work in us and among us and through us? In your name.